Tonight we're going to um, talk again about aspects of the four foundations of mindfulness. And as a teaching team, we were talking several months ago about all the things we could teach on a meditation retreat. And it could be everything under the sun. And there are a lot of teachings on meditation and a lot of refinements. And one thing we all settled on is that if we were all orienting ourselves to the Buddhist teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, there would be an underlying coordination. Uh, so we've been teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness. And some of you are used to this particular list. And for some of you, it might be the first time that you weren't just practicing general mindfulness, but there would be important topics of mindfulness, not just being present, but being present in directed ways. So <clears throat> when the Buddha taught about mindfulness, there are two discourses on mindfulness. One is the Anapanasati Sutta, which is mindfulness of breathing. And the other one is the four foundations of mindfulness. And they, they so interweave that we've actually been teaching from both of these discourses on mindfulness. But one thing <clears throat> we haven't described maybe in a Dharma talk and unpacked a little bit is the third and fourth foundations of mindfulness. So just to back up one step, uh, to be in the medicine of the Dharma requires three trainings. The sila training, which is ethical attunement and ethical action. Second one is uh, samadhi, a general uh, cleaning and purifying of the heart and mind. And the third is panya, developing wisdom from direct experience and listening to wise people and then seeing it in your own perspective. So <clears throat> that's some of the that's sort of the biggest view to be in the Dharma stream is to practice sila, samadhi and panya. On a meditation retreat like this, you all are practicing sila. I'm sure that you're more careful than you ever are uh, not to cause harm, more than you could ever pay attention in daily life. But because of uh, the slow moving and the intentionality of what we're doing, the training of sila uh, almost gets taken care of by the amount of uh, slow consideration, the presence that we're all in, the practicing of loving kindness. So in some ways, sila comes along for the ride. I know we're all practicing it, and maybe at times it's challenging. But after retreat, that's really when sila kicks in as a very important training, and it's where our attention goes. So mostly on a silent retreat like this, uh, it's an above, it's a very special chance to practice mindfulness, to not be so uh, agitated by our interactions with the world. So we can do a, a more refined study of how our minds have habits, making those habits obvious, and then seeing what drives those habits of mind. And you can only do so much of that in the daily, in daily life because you're using those habits to get by. Um, so 
One confusion that can come from that, though, is <clears throat> we can then think the rest of our lives we have to be this mindful, and then all the transformation that happens on the path happens on silent retreat. So it's, it's one thing that's a little bit skewed in the way that we're relating to these Dharma practices, but over in a country of origin like Thailand or Sri Lanka or Burma, meditation retreats are just a small part of the larger path people walk. And the practice of being ethically attuned is the predominant practice supported by a little bit of meditation and wise reflection. But here we have this extraordinary opportunity to uh, come into these rarefied conditions and get a chance to see our minds and the habits that they have and expose the habits of our minds to ourselves. Again, in a way that's very hard to do in daily life. So <clears throat> we're making this part stand out, but it's an eightfold path. And three of the folds are all about uh, the training of ethical living. So when we're practicing uh, mindfulness to this degree of sensitivity and this much dedication, the Buddha <clears throat> described being radically present, the importance of being in the present moment, the ever-changing nature of the present moment. Then he directed people into these four areas to guide our mindfulness because these are the four areas that we're confused about in daily life. And so if you're going to be practicing intensive mindfulness and you want it to be a practice of liberation and healing and transformation, there are these four places to direct your attention and to deepen your mindful intimacy. So the first foundation of mindfulness is the body. Contemplating what it means to have a body, the animal nature of the body, the aging nature of the body, the sensational nature of the body. And that's the foundation practice. So you've all been invited to open up a direct relationship with your body and then learn how bodies work. So beyond what we want from the body and what we are insisting the body be, on a retreat like this, we get to actually go deep in and see what it's like to actually have a human body. The second foundation of mindfulness is Vedana. So you've all been working a lot with Vedana. We've been teaching a lot about Vedana, sometimes directly and sometimes in an integrated way. I'm actually really uh, delighted how much we've been actually guiding people and how much you've all taken on mindfulness of the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral nature of experience. That's where a lot of our reactivity comes from, not seeing Vedana clearly, not seeing our bodies clearly, but we have this Vedana quality. And uh, most of our dramas in life and sufferings in life are inability to meet Vedana or the second and third layer strategy we have of governing our Vedana, trying to keep the pleasant, trying to prevent the unpleasant and then spacing out and ignoring the neutral. So we come then to the next two foundations of mindfulness, and each one, you know, you can spend time just looking at each foundation. Uh, and so I'm 
going to be talking about two of them, but in some ways we've already covered them. I'm just going to make it a little bit more explicit and show how these two rock back and forth between the third and the fourth. So the third foundation of mindfulness, it's probably been mentioned several times here, and we've even already worked with it. But it's bringing mindfulness to the realm of the mind, the chitta. And so the realm of the mind is not the objects of the mind, the thoughts, the inner voice, uh, concepts. It's the, it's the, the realm where uh, emotional and mental processes are happening. So the mind has content, but the mind also has uh, its processes. And what we're asked to do in the third foundation is heighten our mindfulness to be aware with perspective what's happening in the mind uh, while it's happening. So again, it will, to be mindful of your thoughts, images, inner conversations, memories, those are all content of mind. But when we turn to the third foundation, we're talking about being mindful of the flavors and processes of the mind. So this is, <clears throat> the Buddha describes it as uh, being mindful of when there is uh, craving and when there's not craving. So craving can crave many things, but what we're asked to be mindful of, can you actually be aware of craving while it's happening and then be aware of craving when it's not happening? And that's a whole development of mindfulness. We look at craving when it's there, when it's not there. We look at uh, anger when it's there and when it's not there. We look at confusion when it's there and not there. He goes on to list other ways you can look at the mind, whether it's in a mode that feels very constricted or expansive, a mode where it feels very scattered or collected, a mode where the mind feels very free or the mind feels really caught and hooked on something. So those are all uh, in the realm of chitta. So you can have an angry chitta and the content of that angry chitta is how much you resent somebody or an angry chitta can be being stuck in traffic. An angry chitta can see a politician speaking that you do not approve of. So <clears throat> it's a little ephemeral like Vedana in that it's not as tangible as a sight, it's not as tangible as a sound, but it's knowable. So uh, how many of you right now are feeling murderous rage? <laughs> Hopefully there's not somebody who's like too ashamed to admit it. <laughs> But where did you look to ask that? What did you, you probably knew it, but if you really want to see, do you, like, do you have a little murderous rage? Do you have like 0.1% murderous rage? It's like, no, but can you bring your mindful intimacy 
where would it rest to know that? It's like, well, I just know it. It's like if you're happy, you know, clap your hands. <laughs> Everybody claps their hands. So did you actually stop to see if you were happy? <laughs> it's like, no, I just knew I was happy, so I clapped my hands. But you can be in happiness and not really know it, but know it indirectly, so you clap your hands. But where would you rest your mindfulness to be in the experience of, my, of happiness? And it's the same with Vedana. It's a little ephemeral. It's having a big impact on us, whether you're happy or sad, grieving, angry, irritated, starting to get lost in a craving fantasy. It has a big impact on us, but to actually rest mindfulness in that, you have to sort of cool off your relationships to objects where our ordinary mind goes, be able to rest in the stream of the present so you can actually then get mindful intimacy to then make that conscious direct contact. This is a happy mind. The happiness is starting to fade. And this is a bored mind. This mind is expansively bored. <laughs> it's strange, it's very spacious, but it's really bored with the universe or I'm really bored with the breath, no expansion, bored and so interesting. I can actually be bored and expansive. I can be delighted and expansive. I can be grieving and expansive. Oh my God, the plight of the world. Expansive and grieving, like, oh my God, when's the bell gonna ring? Collapsed and grieving. <laughs> so there, there are many things going on in the mind and it can be overwhelming if you try to track all of them. So bit by bit, you get oriented to these emotional states and these cognitive states, maybe the two different levels. Is your mind on, in spot focus? Is it in a little wider or is it in wide focus? Wide attention, narrow attention. That's a cognitive feature. So you can be uh, wide open, enraged, very fixated, enraged. You can be wide open in love, very focused in love. So now we have two things that we're tracking with mindfulness. And then all the ways that those two things, they each have their own rise and fall, but they don't rise and fall perfectly together. And so now you have a whole uh, textured just taking two factors, you know, watching them rise and fall and how they blend together. If you take uh, yellow and blue and it's 90% yellow, 10% blue, it has a, it starts to look a little green. Right in the middle it's very green. Over here it looks more blue. You take two colors and you mix them and you start getting all these shades of yellow, green, and blue. And then you put red down here and you're like, oh my God, now with yellow, blue, and red, you get every color depending on how much you're mixing of them. So this is the color wheel of the mind. And you start by some very primary colors. Is this of aversion? Does it dislike what's happening? Is this greed? Does it want more of what's happening? Is this delusion? Is it confused with what's happening? Are they rising together and blending? Are they dissipating? 
Is this mind stream fairly clear of greed, hatred, delusion? So it can be overwhelming when you think of all the permutations, but very slowly you get to know it. Very slowly you're oriented in a sleepy mind. You're oriented in a greedy mind. You're oriented in a rageful mind. It's hard to be mindful in a rageful mind because the raging mind likes its rage and likes its view of why it's enraged. But on a retreat, there's nowhere to go. So you have to sit in the middle of your mind more than you ever would in ordinary life and clock in many hours with your mind. And then you begin to see there's a perspective you just can't get in daily life to be happy and know it, to be calm and know it, to see calm roll in like a changing weather pattern. And that's perfect third foundation mindfulness. No intervention. The only intervention is what improves intimacy without changing what you're trying to be intimate with. It takes incredible courage and patience because we have tons of preferences about what mind states we like and don't like, what emotional states we like and don't like. So you're overcoming a lot of habit to want to get out of grief, to want to get out of impatience. So when you're practicing the third foundation of mindfulness, all you're trying to do is not change the heart-mind, but use that moment of the heart-mind to give you another chance to get to know what's happening in the heart-mind. It's confusing because you'll also hear about the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where we use, now that we know grief and what it feeds upon, what's not healthy about grief can be, uh, you can intervene upon it wisely. So in the fourth foundation, Mindfulness does have the language of intervention. What, knowing what I know about anger, I've learned how to diffuse it. And then I suffer less. That was confusing to me because I, it, I didn't realize that there were two different approaches of mindfulness being taught. So sometimes they would tell me, just be with the sleepiness. And then some other times they'd be telling me all these ways to antidote the sleepiness. And I'd be confused. Wait, am I supposed to be accepting of it or antidoting it? And the, and the truth is, with wisdom, you end up doing both. And that is confusing. So it's hard to accept craving and try to get rid of it, change it because it's a suffering state at the same time. And so I wanted to talk about these two foundations in the same go because if you just talk about one of them, then you have to try to integrate them. And it's a little confusing because if you're in the framing of the third foundation of mindfulness, you're to very patiently just sit in the boat, go through the day and be in experiences as they arise. The first three foundations of mindfulness have absolutely no language of intervention. This is what you feel in your body. These are the Vedana. These are the mental states. You see them arising, you see them passing, 
arising and passing, or you just see them with bare attention. Nowhere in the first three foundations is there anything about changing any of it. So it takes courage to be with the body. It takes courage to be with Vedana. It takes courage to be with the mind. It takes patience to be with the body, patience to be with Vedana, patience to be with the mind, and slowly build intimacy with all the variations that are happening in body, in Vedana, and mind. What that does is it opens the door so that your interventions are skillful. So in the fourth foundation, there's a lot more application of wisdom so that you can skillfully unhook what's feeding your suffering, but not to jump out of the frying pan into the fire. I don't like this. How do we get out of here? Oh, I do this. That does work or it doesn't work, but you keep trying to get out of something because you don't like it and into something because you crave it and you're actually doing dharma craving and dharma aversion. So <clears throat> the interventions that are possible in the fourth foundation become more clean if you've taken the time to patiently be with your heart and mind. If you can't be with your heart and mind, all your meditative strategies are probably fueled by impatience, an anxiety about yourself or if you're doing the practice right, a greedy pursuit of a better version of you. That's what's so powerful about the third foundation and really the first three is that we're just trying to bring mindfulness into the stream of what's happening. And in that way, it's clear you're not heroically to change your mind yet. The heroicism comes in the patience and the courage to be intimately in what's happening and to do that over as long a period as possible. So here's an example of why, <clears throat> of how this might work together. So in the fourth foundation, there's language like, having seen this problematic state arise, I saw it pass, and I came to understand upon the conditions that it arose and the conditions that helped it pass, and that helped me avoid it more in the future. So by learning, seeing how it behaves, I can help painful states and suffering states pass. And I also have an intuition how to avoid the conditions that make my anger, or my craving, or my confusion arise. So that is the language of intervention, but it grows out of the courage at first not to intervene. So again, an example. I was doing a lot of my early practice at Insight Meditation Society back in Massachusetts, and they have a, a basement area for walking, kind of like we do down here. And I really liked walking there because outside there was so much stimulation and if I got into this little basement, you know, drab colors, people just walking back and forth, and I thought, yeah, I, I feel more in control of my practice here. 
no idea that I was looking for control, but I felt I had a little bit more control. So <clears throat> I was doing walking meditation over the days down in this basement. And then a couple of weeks into the practice, um, this person was walking next to me and they, they had sneakers on and they dragged one of their feet just a little bit. So on the carpet, there'd be this zip, 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 doing slow walking, zip, zip. I was like, oh, that is really distracting. I'm trying to be with my footsteps, but I'm obsessed with his footsteps and even the pause between his footsteps, <laughs> anticipating his next footsteps. And why doesn't he hear it himself? Why would he do this? That's like, I, that's not my job. That's not my work. Under these conditions, find your own feet. So I did this. And I tried to walk in the other side of the room with him to minimize it. But once I'd heard it, I could hear it across the room. And it's like, okay, this is my challenge. This is my work. And at some point I got tired of it and I found some other place to do walking meditation. Ah, problem solved. And then he found me. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he had no idea who I was, but he walked next to me in this whole other part of the campus and he dragged the same foot on the carpet in that room. Zip, zip. Oh my God. You sure we can't write notes? Yes, you cannot write notes. But it's so obvious I could fix this. Like, nope, you cannot fix this. And I remember getting so despairing. It's like, ah, oh, this is so oppressive. And then I stopped and I said, finally, the temple. What is oppressive? Like, it's that sound. And like this little periscope came up, like maybe one of those submarines coming up in the Arctic, kind of like breaking through and looking around. Like, this has been weeks of oppression. <laughs> and so I did walking meditation and I actually stopped and I put my head against the wall and I just listened. I was like, I've always been listening with resistance, I've been listening with resentment. And I've been listening, trying to fix it. I've been listening, trying to endure it. But I never listened to it. And so I put my head against the wall and I listened to it. And I listened to it. It's like, wow, there's still this deep despair around this sound. But it can't be from the sound. I've heard worse sounds. So then I was stuck. I was stuck in cooking in resentment and irritation. My mind was sure it was this person's fault, sure I couldn't make headway in my own practice. And <clears throat> in that, I started to inquire into the state of this oppression, this oppression. And I never would have done that had it not been for the practice holding me in this and not allowing me to fix it. And I tried fixing it by walking elsewhere, tried fixing it with dharma tools and antidoting, but there was definitely something oppressive about this. So then I began to drop in, like, it's oppressive, it's oppressive. God, it is so oppressive. What could be this oppressive? And I breathed with that, and that took several days. I was no longer trying to fight it or fix it, but I was exploring the oppression 
of this person's uh, foot sound. And I think, well, this is just as far as I can take it. I don't know why it's oppressive. I, he seems to follow me and I just have to kind of endure. I mean, this is one of those things that's baked into the universe. You will suffer at times. It's like, yeah, I, I can't see the cause of it. And then one day, and really there was no way to get here quicker than to do this type of slow settling in. I dropped in and I saw, I am so embarrassed going into my meditation teachers and not giving them signs of my improvement. And I don't want to do it again. I don't want to walk in one more time and not say something that even though they're trying to be super even and say it's all good practice, they're micro signals. <laughs> micro signals, the teachers give off like, oh, oh, okay. You had that happen? It's like, oh, I saw that. That's where the A in Buddhism is. That's where the love is. That's where the specialness is. So I'm always trying to go in, trying to present like, what would I give to them that they would give me back a sense of good self? I thought, oh my God, with this guy dragging his foot, I can't concentrate in the way that I get that sparkle look from the teachers that I was really there to see a footstep begin, a footstep end, and then a little pause, and then a thought come in. And that's when I can see the spidey senses of my teachers. Like, oh. <laughs> but with this guy dragging his foot, my walking meditations are always like, I am distraught that this guy is dragging his foot and I can't figure out why. And I'm just kind of a second-rate meditator. Uh, not even second-rate. I'm definitely in the back, sweeping up after more glorious beings. <laughs> Everybody else is like asking questions. I'm sure they're making headway. And I'm just like, God, I'm turtle yogi. I'm slower than turtle yogi. I'm like... Uh, moss and a rock yogi. I'm just. <laughs> I said, Yeah, if you keep dragging your foot, I'm always going to fail at walking meditation. But the failure is in that 15 minute interview and how much affirmation I can extract from a teacher. And like all of a sudden it began to crack open. I was like, I'm going to suffer this much over weeks to try to extract a twinkle in a teacher's eye or I could drop the whole game and then it was droppable. But up until that point where I could meet the oppression, sit in the oppression, go down through it and find what was really hooked, every intervention would have hidden that deeper. Uh, it was so common to me to get affirmation from other people. You know, I was in my young 20s and having people I respected give me affirmation was how I kind of knew I was on the right path in life. I definitely wanted to be free of it, but deep emotionally, I was still pulling on it. That was amazing. And then I saw it's going to be even more amazing when I report that. <laughs> I was like... You son of a gun. You just suffered, stepped out of the whole construction, had a moment of freedom and expansion, and then wanted back in on the game. And then my mind says, it's going to be so good when you report that. And I'm like, you are shameless. 
oh my God. And I just watched it. They're like, you could report that, and you could report that, and you could report that. Then you could report that. Oh, you're going to get the twinkle. Oh, say it in a really kind of humble, soft way. That will get like, oh, he's so, he's so humble. He's having these amazing insights. And I was like, wow, you're working this 15-minute interview so much. And that, that one moment unhooked one thing, but it exposed a pattern, which was pulling on the thread that unraveled a lot of sweater. I was like, how often am I doing this? It's like, oh my God, I'm doing this a lot. I'm walking, somebody walks by, I get a little more poise. Like, you're trying to get them to think you're a better meditator. Wow, you're doing it there. It's like, wow, look at the way I'm eating. It's so performative of mindfulness. It's not mindfulness. But everybody else is around, and I'm trying to like, I wonder if they're going to praise me after the retreat. I wonder if they're going to, and I can work that program. I, I was very good at working that program. If you did it overtly, it'd be boastful. So you had to slip in small things humbly, get the same praise, but the praise was elated because you were so humble about the thing you were bragging about. <laughs> and I watched how complicated so many relationships I had were interwoven with good parts of the relationship and then this picky backing cheap ego trick to get a little praise, I'll get a little affirmation. And then the flip side was how much I was abandoning myself in bad practice and how it was just not worthy because somebody else wasn't going to praise it. And so this one thing that I sat with that took me time to sit down in it ended up giving me a, a, you know, a one-point insight, but it began to unravel how many things I were doing. And I had seen it before, but I didn't see the roots of it. And I watched how many of my uh, intentions would get this little piggyback of self-production, self-polishing, self-presentation. It took a long time to untangle that. But if I hadn't sat with the oppression, this, this sense of oppression, I wouldn't have discovered what I was being oppressed by. And it was nice because it was so clear it couldn't be his shoe. But it still took me time to sit with it to discover what's going on. And one thing I love about putting my time in and doing a lot of practice is a lot a lot of my friends have also put in time. And so we'll be talking, they'll be triggered by something. It's like, oh, I'm triggered by something. And I say, oh, okay, what is it? And it's like, I don't know yet. Ah, I don't know, just something. Yeah, I'm going to have to sit with that for a while. And I do that too. It's like, yeah, I know I'm triggered. I'm, and I know it can't be the external situation. Sometimes it can be the external situation. Sometimes people are being dangerous to you. But when you see that it's really disproportional, it can allow you to find a deeper hook in you and let go on that hook. When you let go on that hook, you're not substituting a, an experience you don't like for an experience you're craving. You're actually unhooking an ignorance, and then you happen to get better because of it. You happen to feel better. 
but it's not a craving to feel better. If you're still craving to feel better, you really haven't sat in the thing you want transformed yet. So this leads to that paradox. The more you accept something, the deeper the change you can make about it. Because it's not the accepting that goes to sleep or becomes passive. It's the accepting that allows finally for intimacy to see what's going on. So your intervention is much more at the core level of why something's happening. So silly example, you can uh, get a splinter and then a whole area gets infected. So infected, you can't even see the original splinter. Or if it's like a, uh, one of those cactus uh, splinters, that's a little clearer. So you know the area is uh, inflamed and infected, but you can't see what the cause of it. And then as your body heals, it heals towards that original splinter and you can see it again. So sometimes we feel the irritation, but we haven't actually seen the cause of it. And what I've seen is my angry, impatient mind will immediately blame the wrong thing. Driving in traffic, I'm in the flow, kind driver, traffic thickens, my neck stiffens a little bit. Don't want to be in thick traffic, but but I'm not going to ride somebody's bumper. I'm going to leave a little space. And then somebody squeezes into that space in a lane that's closing. If I had machine guns on the front of my car, <laughs> it's like, ah, when I want to kill them. I just want to destroy their car. I'm like, yeah, karma, buddy. <laughs> it's so good my car doesn't come with a cannon. <laughs> but why am I suffering in that moment? Jerk. I suffer. Why am I suffering? I'm driving. There's a lot of traffic in the Bay Area. I haven't grown used to it. Why is that? Because I was here before there was traffic. And one time I got from the East Bay to downtown San Francisco in 20 minutes, and I know that's how it should be. So everything that's not that is a problem. Like, mm, okay, yeah, reality doesn't look like that anymore. Do you want to suffer over that? And it seems I do. It seems I can get so lost in my plans that I make this unconscious assumption around time that I can connect two dots like I used to, and then I get frustrated. I sink into the frustration, but I give it minimal mindfulness just to take the edge off the suffering. Still resent it, but like, okay, this is the way it is. Not really mindful, but just a little less suffering. But then when someone cuts in front of me, that's an insult to me. And I was not doing so great just with the traffic. And then I have this uh, rage come up and this impatience. And then I'm really doing all I can not to give them a whack with my car uh, to for justice. So you can do uh, mindfulness that really still fixates wrongly on the problem, but you're taking the edge off with some patience and some inner self-coaching. Or you can come down and say, what is this about? What's actually cooking here? And to do that, you actually have to be safe. I mean, you can't, you have to be safe so that you can do this type of work and then find a deeper hook and release it. And you can't just tell everybody, you're obviously attached, go fix yourself because uh, one, that may not be where the real problem is because people can be cruel to each other. But some of the hooks actually take time to go down into them and see what's the suffering about. 
So you'll hear this uh, on both sides of the hindrances. Sometimes you'll hear advice that antidotes a hindrance, like stand up if you're sleepy, try to relax and get more spacious if you're restless, uh, see the impermanent nature of things you crave, try to relax and let go of the fixation of aversion, practice faith if you're doubtful. Those are all, how do you get out of the hindrances? There was an a, a turning in my practice, which if I would go back, I would give myself more advice to turn this way. And it's like, how do you balance sleepiness, not to get rid of it, but enough to bring mindfulness into it? How do you balance restlessness enough not to get rid of it, but help mindfulness come up inside of it? How do you balance uh, rage enough so you can get mindfulness inside of it and then learn from it? This happened to me in uh, Burma during the end of the rainy season. It gets dry again, but um, it's still really hot. And so you can get this hot, steamy weather. And that was <clears throat> in November, and there was a lot of gift giving at the end of the rainy season uh, practice. And I was in this ceremony that lasted for three hours, and I thought, well, my legs are going to fall asleep, but that's okay. That's okay, they'll fall asleep and I'll just sit there and they'll be numb and at some point. And I heard somebody say, Yeah, that's the strategy. You let your legs go numb, then they don't hurt as much. And then you can sit there for three hours. I've never sat for three hours, but okay. So I sat there and they moved me right up in front of Upandita as a gift to me to be at the like the main show. I was like, I'm easily taller than everybody else. And I'm kind of standing out, but I'm just gonna sit and this is my participation in the ceremony. Legs went numb, blood circulation was cut off, and I was just breathing moment by moment. And next thing I knew, people were standing in front of me. I looked up and they were lifting me up. I was like, I, I do not know what's happening. I've never been in one of these ceremonies before. As I went to balance myself, they put a, a set of robes in my hand so I had monk robes in my hand, and I was being lifted up. And I looked at Upandita, who was about 12 feet away from me, and I was like, I don't know what's appropriate here, and I'm really disoriented, but I will try my best. So I went to stand up, and my legs were numb. And so I had this leg behind me, I was on a kneeling bench, and I slid it forward, no sensation, and I thought, that's far out enough I must be able to put my weight on it. But it was still a bit tucked behind me, so I put my weight on it, and I heard this pop. And I sprained my ankle, pop. And I fell to my knee, and there was a gasp in the room. And I was holding these robes, and people still were trying to lift me. I was like, I will do this. Like, I, I, I will not insult this culture. It's been so, so generous to me. And this seems to be what we're doing. So I got the other leg, and I was like, push it out further this time. Push it way out before you put weight on it. So I got this leg out in front of me. I was like, God, there's no more room ahead of me. I got to put some weight on it. I put some weight on it, second pop. Pop. Another gasp in the room. And I'm holding this robe. I've just sprained both my ankles. I'm really disoriented. And I look at Upandita, who is just unflinching all most of the time and he he said it's okay i've never seen him look so like soft and compassionate 
And then I went back and sat down. And I was like, I am so bewildered, really humiliated. Uh, my legs are now throbbing. And the ceremony just went on. And then I was like, okay, okay, this is weird, but roll with it. And then my, both my uh, feet swelled up, both my ankles. And I thought, oh, I'm really afraid I did something here. And uh, they said, oh, we got something to help for, with this. And the person went away and came back. And they gave me a, a jar and said, we're going to make a poultice. And I was rolling the jar around. I was like, I wonder what they make a poultice out of. And I was rolling this jar around. The body of this black scorpion came up against the glass jar. And I was like, oh, my God. This probably works, but I, I don't have bandwidth for this being the medicine for both my ankles. And so I said, I, something's wrong with my ankles. I'd really like to see a doctor about this. I want to make sure they're not hurt. So they drove me into the city center from the forest center. And I got in a truck, and very kindly, they put me up front in the passenger seat. But this truck didn't have a, a barrier between the hot engine and the passenger. So I had to put my swollen feet down it was already hot out, and it got even hotter and hotter. I was like, oh, my God, this is so torturous. And they put me in a room, and the doctor checked it out. They were fine, but I needed a couple of days to recover. And I was in this room, and it was hot, and both my ankles hurt, and I was a little disoriented. And, and this young monk was running up and down the hallway, banging on every door, making everybody laugh. But I just got overstimulated. And I was like, I can't hold it together. I've been trying to hold it together. I've been noting how angry and despairing this all is. But at some point, I was just like, this is a madhouse. But not Burma. This is a madhouse. And I can't keep it in check anymore. And I was like, wow, I am a human volcano. <sighs> wow, this is rage. And I'm not trying to manage it. I'm not hurting anybody. But I'm not containing it either. I was like, wow, I am Vesuvius. I am just... <laughs> I was like, I'm years into this practice, and I've never done this. I've never been enraged, let myself be enraged, not attacked the object, not contained it, not wrote an angry response in a letter. I am just in the energy of rage. And it wasn't permanent. But if I hadn't been held to those conditions, I never would have crossed into what mindfulness of rage is. And it's right there in the teachings. When the mind is in rage, you know it's enraged. You'll see that it's impermanent, and then it passes. You'll see a mind without rage. Seeing a mind with rage, seeing a mind without rage, you already know which one you prefer. But when you get enraged unmindfully, some of us kind of like it. We like the empowerment, we like the, the righteousness of it, we're crafting the emails, we're proudly not sending them because we're proud of ourselves. But there's a, there's a lot of kind of entanglement with the rage. But can you actually courageously say, okay, conditions are serving up rage. Oh, how do I meet this? How do I understand it? I am, I am this monster that just is raging and the heat that comes off and like oh every thought has this destruction in it but i'm actually tracking it mindfully i mean not pristine mindfully but like i i'm actually in the storm while it's happening 
when you do that, you can actually find some of the things that are embedded unconsciously that are fomenting that much rage. And if you can unhook there, all the inflammation of the rage goes out. But you have to be able to go down into it, not trying to solve it, but be in it. And the same with uh, a greedy mind. You have to get into a greedy mind and not try to work it. But like, what is that precious that I'm this obsessed about something? And why can't I be happy anymore without that thing I'm greedy for? Why am I despairing I don't have this pleasant thing? You go down, you get down, you get down. It's like, oh yeah, I'm unsure about myself. And as long as I don't actually know how to love this being, I'll be really distracted in other versions of me and escape his fantasies. Like, interesting, this fantasy here is actually rooted in, I have yet to learn a deeply kind relationship to myself. But if I put the medicine there, a whole bunch of uh, distracted fantasy get me out of intimacy with myself habits begin to heal. So you can go deeper into your system when you do the third foundation of mindfulness is get to know your mind, get to know uncomfortable expressions of your mind. And then you should see a twinkle in your teacher's eye. Not that you're looking for it, but it's like, wow, I was really sleepy. And for the first time, I let myself be sleepy and I took interest in it. And then you did. Oh my God, that's rare. Or I was suffering and I took interest in why am I suffering? And I started with all these intellectual inquiries. I was like, no, no, down in, like, why am I suffering? Why? My mind is so sure it's this, but is that it? And then coming down and say, oh, wow, I discovered a hook down deep. And I let go there. And then all this patterning of suffering began to alleviate. That's really deeper medicine. So when you get to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, when you go to, I could see how the greed arose out of the conditions that it arose. And I saw how it faded. One, just by its own nature, it faded. But two, I released some of what was hooking me on greed, what was hooking me on anger, what was hooking me on grief. And grief became beautiful when I wasn't hooked on all the wishing I didn't have to grieve over the loss of a loved one. Unhooking the right hook allows the mind to then be uh, more free. And then there are fewer conditions that you have to pull together to be happy. You actually can be happy with the energy that is near anger, but it hasn't become fixated, distorted anger. It's just there's a protective energy coming up. There's an energy coming up that uh, there's some conflict, but why are we in conflict? If you're exploring conflict with somebody else and you rush too quickly to a solution, you might be missing out on what is actually brewing in the conflict. So I used to be uh, really anxious around conflict and I would do anything. I had like five fast maneuvers to neutralize conflict. And then I got into the practice more. I was like, why am I squirming so much around conflict? 
It's like, oh, I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of the potential. I'm afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid of somebody not liking me. And I breathe through all those and I could find, oh, our conflict is actually rooted here, which means there's a solution. But when I was avoiding conflict because I didn't like the flavor of it, I couldn't breathe inside the conflict. So my solutions were kind of shallow. So when we get to the fourth foundation, the interventions we do actually solve suffering versus just swap out A for B. And if you still hate A and are craving B and you win at a cheap solution, it has you double down on that solution. And then when you see that solution doesn't work later, but it worked once, you don't know anything else, but like, I only suffer when this happens, so I'm really desperate about having this happen again. I haven't learned to be inside the experience and see what I'm really hooked on. That becomes really about liberation, not about using practice to smooth out a little bit of roughness or to make things slightly better. There's room for that practice too. There's room for calming yourself if you're agitated. But sometimes you can so calm yourself that you lose access to why you're agitated, which means the conditions are ripe for new agitation. You haven't really come into your heart to see what feeds all this insecurity. So now I'm having to problem solve 10,000 insecurities rather than coming down to the insecurity giving me access to what's brewing, put the medicine there, and then I don't have to solve it 10,000 times. When I lived in the Northwest, we used to do a lot of uh, salmon breeding ground uh, restoration. And it usually meant clearing out blackberries that were choking off streams and uh, overshading places where the salmon liked to spawn. So we got really good at clearing blackberries. And novel people with high inspiration, like me when I started, would clear blackberries by like, hacking at the leaves and then hacking at the little branches and hacking at the bigger branches and then going down. And I would watch experienced people push past the leaves, follow the leaves down into the stems, down to the roots, and they would make their first intervention deep in and then watch this whole hedge of blackberry roll off because their intervention had been deep. We want to do those Dharma interventions, not on pruning the leaves and then maybe getting to the twigs and then maybe getting to the branches. But the more you can breathe inside your suffering, the more the intervention goes down into more core, uh, core suffering that's showing up as surface level distress. So the same moment that's distressing you is also giving you this uh, deep access, if you can breathe down through it, you can actually go down through any moment of distress and find deeper causes of it. That's why the fourth foundation is fourth, is that we spend a lot of time in the first three foundations building intimacy with the body to see the body is not the problem. The body is an amazing animal, just an absolutely amazing animal. So any problem solving you're doing on overriding your animal nature is not really going to end your suffering. And it's, it's sad to see people aging and their solutions are to hide the aging as if that really gets at the problem of aging. It just 
gives us a little more breathing time not to actually come in, that this body is going to age. And so the intervention isn't on distracting ourselves from the aging, but coming to terms with the aging. These bodies get ill. That's their nature. It's not their fault. They're very, this, this body of mind is an incredibly strong body that has been able to endure an affliction for as long as it has. I'm proud of how this body, the strength in it, but also it is ill. In the beginning of my illness, I resented the illness and wanted to fix the illness so I could get back to my life as I understood it. But actually the suffering of the illness was so prolonged I had to change my relationship to the body and found deeper embedded delusions that would have run along and cropped up around every illness, but I would have just tried to solve it with get me through this illness and get me past it so I don't actually have to do core self-love and body love and body relationship. So we're doing a preemptive deeper intimacy so that we can actually make interventions in a way that actually solves the core of suffering versus just some surface level renegotiations, kick the can down the road and then find a similar pattern of suffering, uh, just showing up in a new context. That's why in the first three foundations of mindfulness, the courage is not to make the body better but can you rest in the body as it shows up and learn from this animal that it breathes, has heartbeat, the temperature regulates. It has pains, luckily they're not permanent. They pulse, they come in waves, but the body does not only express uh, pain. Body has pleasure. And even a body in great pain, if you rest with it long enough, you also see that a body that's ill also has areas that are pleasant. And the body has a lot of neutral, familiar uh, sensations. None of that is the actual problem. But if you want to have a, a shallow relationship with the body, you just go away from what's unpleasant. You try your best to conjure up what's pleasant and you keep ignoring what's neutral. And that will get you through you know, eight to nine decades of living, but it's not a recipe for happiness. Mindfulness of the body, no intervention, learn from it. So when you intervene, it's really not to improve the body. The body is a phenomenal, phenomenal miracle of nature. The intervention is on the mind's ability to rightly relate to the body. Same with Vedana, you'll, you'll never win at only pleasant things. You don't have to lose when there are, are unpleasant things. Vedana wins, blow, but there's a second layer of suffering that comes in not being able to relate to Vedana. So a lot of mindfulness practice is the Vedana wins, blow. There's less choice around them than you would have in ordinary life, which means that you ha have to have the primary experience of unpleasantness more than you would the primary experience of pleasure and see that it's transient. And the primary experience of neutrality and see it's actually not so bad. It's not as boring. Boredom is not in the neutral sensations. It's in the mind that it can't quite rest consciously with neutral it's still looking for pleasant. 
But as that mind state passes, neutral experiences without changing become a kind of refuge. That's an intervention that leads to liberation. So, again, we have these four foundations of mindfulness. The first three are body, vedna, and uh, emotional and cognitive states that roll through. It's a courageous act of mindfulness to not intervene upon them. And we have to be honest, we would if we could. But under these conditions, we don't have as many distracting options. So we end up having a much more honest relationship to our bodies, to Vedna, to the way that our emotions roll through, our mental states roll through. And that allows us, one, not to suffer the nature of the body, of Vedana, of the heart-mind. And it also allows our interventions to actually get at root causes of suffering, not at just a shallow distraction or shallow interventions that keep the, the system of suffering cooking. But now you just have to let it crop up one more time and kick the can down the road. Can you come into your system and understand why it's suffering? And can you use any suffering of the present to be that doorway into understanding? Do I really have to suffer under these conditions? Or can I find a deeper cause? And if it's not obvious to me now, could it be growing by the way I breathe in there? And it's not just the suffering. If you are content with this much renunciation, you've solved a lot of your problems. Because a lot of the world is this beautiful. A lot of, there are flowers blooming everywhere, even in concrete cities. You'll watch grass growing through a crack. And if you can be delighted by a blade of grass, the places you can be happy are numerous. And so what's happening here is showing you what actual happiness grows upon and what actual suffering grows upon. And that's very hard to see in the ordinary, in an ordinary life. So with that said, I want to turn us back into the stream of practice. And if that was a lot of words, you can let them all dissipate and just walk away with an intuition. I don't know if I got all that, but I'm glad to be here. And I'm willing to breathe inside more experiences without needing to change them. I just need to understand them. I need to bring my intimacy into a greater range of experiences. I'm going to use these conditions and all that arises in them to be an extension, an expansion of where I know how to be present and how not to suffer.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.